Second Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing our series on how to study the Bible, and we're going to do a few sessions on context, context. Um, when I first went through this material, and I'm, I'm kind of reworking everything, developing new lessons, but when I first went through this, I don't know, 20-some years ago, Jeff Adams was teaching it. And he said that the most important principle in Bible study is context. It's the most important thing for you to know. He said the second one is very similar to the first. The second most important thing to know in Bible study, the first is context. The second is very similar. It's context. And then then the third most important principle of Bible study, what do you think it is? Context. So it's not that there's one, two, and three. It's that you just make your list... And context is its own list. Everything else falls underneath it. And so it's really important that we get to understand this. So what we're going to do today is we're going to define what we mean by context. And then I'm going to give you some examples of passages taken out of context. Then next week we'll begin learning how to study in context. So let's let's look at this. I want to do a little bit of a review. Well, let's try this again. What I get for mocking Jacob. So I want to do a little bit of a review. Um, we've been looking at how to study the Bible. The first thing that we need to know is that we actually have the Bible. We have the words of God. We need to believe that we have the words of God. The second is that we have to study the Bible by its divisions. And the, the most important division is Old Testament and New Testament. You need to know when the New Testament started. And the New Testament began with the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus in the book of Luke said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And then the Bible in the book of Hebrews says that a testament is not a force while the testator liveth, that a testament is a force after men are dead. So it's obvious that the New Testament began with the death of Jesus Christ. That means that everything before that is Old Testament. Everything before the death of Christ is Old Testament. You can't understand your Bible without that. And then, of course, in our right division, we looked at you can't understand the Bible without understanding the difference between law and grace. If you confuse law and grace, then you don't even know how to be saved. You don't even know how to go to heaven if you're confusing law and grace. That's the most important part of our right division. But now, let's look at context. Let's look at this subject of context. We'll get to the passage in a minute. So this man, J. Edwin Hartle, J. Edwin Hartle, so Jeff Adams learned his How to Study the Bible method from, from a book that Hartle had done. And then Mark Trotter took that information and expanded it. And in his introduction, he gave credit to Hartle. And then Hartle gave credit to a guy named Moyer. What are we learning? There's nothing new under the sun. Amen? There's nothing new under the sun. But there are a couple of things that was really fun. I showed this to Laura the other day. I was reading Hartle's book. And some of the illustrations that I use for right division... The verses that I use and these things that, that I came up with in my great mind in the 1940s, he had written it. Isn't that fun? And it, so we always say this, if you find something in the Bible no one else has ever found, you're probably wrong. Amen? So, you remember that when you're listening to Theology Roundtable. All right, let's keep, let's keep going right here. So, here's from Hartle. That principle, he's defining context, that principle by which God gives light upon a subject through either near or remote passages. So y'all from your own English classes, you understand that context, it's the, the, the nearest references 
are where you're going to to get the best information. We're going to work on that next week, okay? That principle by which God gives light upon a subject through either near or remote passages bearing upon the same theme. Every sentence or verse in the Bible has something that precedes it and something that follows it except Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. That's a good statement, isn't it? And so if you want to understand a verse, look at what comes before it and after it. Let me give you an example of that. Hold your place here in 2 Peter and go to Revelation chapter 2. You all will recognize this. I point this out often when we study this passage. All right, Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, it's not hard to understand the words. We know what stars are, and we know what candlesticks are, but that's kind of a weird sentence. And so sometimes in the book of Revelation, you'll hear people, they'll, they'll come up with all kinds of explanation for what these words mean. James Knox is one of my favorites. Someone was saying that, that he was teaching that Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 is actually Jerusalem. That Mystery Babylon is actually Jerusalem. That's what somebody accused him of. So I called Brother Knox, and I said, so if, if, and so he told me what he teaches, and it was a little bit longer conversation, and which I already knew. I'd already heard him teach on it. I just thought maybe something had changed. And I said, so somebody says you're teaching that, that Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem. What would you tell them? Jerusalem is Jerusalem. Babylon is Babylon. That's a very Knoxian answer, isn't it? That's what we would teach. So when the Bible talks about 200 million horsemen from the east, guess what those are? 200 million horsemen from the east. The book of Revelation is not that hard to understand. It's just hard to believe. And it's becoming easier to believe, isn't it? Right? In the last year and a half. All right. Verse 1. Unto the angel of chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So our, our principle of near context, to understand this, let's look at a couple of verses around it. Look at chapter 1 and verse 19. How many of you know that it's legal to look in the previous chapter? Okay, look at verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now it's not hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. The stars are the angels, and the candlesticks are the churches. So Jesus is holding those angels in his hand, and he's holding the stars, and he's walking up and down in the midst of the candlesticks. It's What happened? The context defined it. Okay, so let's go back. You can go back to Second Peter. We'll be there in a minute. Let's, let's read this definition again. It's on the screen. That principle by which God gives light upon a subject through either near or remote passages. We'll look at some of the remote passages next week. Bearing upon the same theme. Every sentence or verse in the Bible has something that precedes it and something that follows it except Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. Now, there, there's something in that sentence that's very important. If somebody says they found something that was written before Genesis or that, you know, that, that would precede it, they're liars. 
If somebody says they have a continuing revelation from God, have you ever heard that from the Mormons? Right? It's not true. Nothing came after Revelation 22:21. The Bible is finished. It's finished until the Word Himself appears again. Praise the Lord. So, that's context. Let's go on. That's from his Principles of Biblical Hermeneutics. So, why is this important? So, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 16, and then we're going to look at some of the context of this, of this chapter. So, you know, the, it begins with as, and we're going, to, we're going to get some more information, but I want you to see something important in this verse, all right? Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, so everybody there? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood. So in our discipleship, uh, Dave Spicer and I were talking about just a very difficult passage in the Bible. And we were talking about why is it hard to understand this passage? Is it a translation problem? So I showed him the passage in several other translations, and it was still hard to understand. Do you know why that passage was hard to understand? Because sometimes Paul was hard to understand. It's an accurate translation of a difficult passage. Are you following me? So Peter, the fisherman, said, that Peter, he's a mess. I'm sorry, that Paul, he's a mess. I can't understand that guy. He's way over my head. Do you see that's what Peter's saying right here? Right? Now, here's what happens, though. Because some passages are hard to understand, because some passages are hard to understand, look at what it says. Verse 16 again, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest... Now, there's not, that's not R-E-S-T, that's W-R-E-S-T, like wrestle, they rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction, unto their own destruction. Because some passages are hard to understand, that's why one of our key principles in Bible study is you, you, you interpret the difficult by the clear. You, dif, you, you interpret the, the, the hard by the easy. That's That's... That's what we do. But notice what unstable and unlearned people do is they wrestle the passage out of its context. So let's back up and look at what the Bible's talking about. Verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Isn't it fun how accurate scientifically the Bible is? Understand. That if you have the, the law of thermodynamics that says matter cannot be created or destroyed, the idea of melting elements and those things coming apart and all of that, until we understood splitting an atom and what happens, people couldn't understand what this passage is talking about. How many of you think God knew that? Right? So now, look at what it says. Verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So there's going to come a time when there's no sin, either in heaven or in earth. It surprises people to learn that sin is in heaven. Well, Satan appears before God in heaven. How many of you believe that Satan is sinful? All right, so all of that's going to be dissolved. Now look at what it says in verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace 
without spot and blameless, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto you, him, given unto him, hath written unto you. And he goes on and talks about his epistles. But I want you to see something in verse 15 that's important. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long-suffering of our Lord, what's that talking about? How many of you have ever heard that people won't believe in God because they're suffering in the world? Have you heard that? How could a loving God allow suffering? Because he's long-suffering. His long-suffering is salvation. Is that what it says? Salvation comes because God is long-suffering. What's the context? When righteousness comes, this everything, heavens and earth, are going to be dissolved. There's going to be a new one. Is that what the Bible says right here? That's the context? The long-suffering of God is, yes, God could stop all suffering. And he will. But in order to do that, in order to do that, everyone has to be judged. Everyone. Unless you're saved. How many of you are saved? You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's one. We'll see how many times that happens today. But you're saved. You're born again. You know Christ Jesus is your Savior. When Jesus Christ comes, hallelujah, we get out of here. Right? What about everybody else? What happens to everybody else? Yeah, they die. They die. So what God is doing is God is, God, listen, God is looking. He knows exactly what's going on in the world. He understands the suffering. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the Bible says. He knows exactly what's going on in the world. And he will end it. But when he does, there's no more salvation. Now, how many of you can see that's the exact context of this? Vital. When you look at what the Bible is saying, and people, they rest the, the, the rest out of their own scriptures but now, or to their own destruction. Rest the scriptures to their own destruction. Verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things, seeing you know these things before, beware, look at this, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfast. When people wrestle the scriptures out of their meaning out of their context, you can fall. You can stumble. People who know the truth can be led away into error. That's why context is vital. We have to understand. You're not allowed to wrestle that out. So if you, now look, verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the what? Everyone, what is that? Knowledge. Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice it's always a battle of your mind. It is always a battle of your mind, and so you have to think to be able to understand this context. They wrestle it unto their own destruction. All right, principle. You will never understand your Bible if you confuse the Old Testament with the New Testament. You all agree with that? Right? We're not killing any animals today unless we're going hunting. Some of you might be doing that later. Dalton would say, my problem is I say hunting instead of hunting. Or whatever, however you people say it. All right. You will never understand your Bible if you confuse the Old Testament with the New Testament. Here's another principle. If you, you will never understand the Bible if you ignore the context of the passage. Man, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. And Hartle goes on and talks about that. But key thought. Here's from Mark Trotter. There are many cults and false systems of religion in the world 
that use the Bible as their supposed source of truth. Man, I'm just telling you, if the Mormons come to your house, they're going to use the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses will use a Bible. All of these cults, they wrestle Scripture out of its context to deceive you, and the only protection that you have is for you to understand the context. Y'all doing okay this morning? Okay, try not to bore you. Trotter continues, The false teaching that originates in these systems is rooted in biblical truth, and yet it is truth that has been taken out of context. In other words, it is a biblical truth that has either been misplaced and or misapplied. We talked about one of these in Sunday school. There are people that believe, there are men, Christian men, who believe that every woman in the church is to be submissive to him. No, the Bible says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Older women are to teach younger women that they're to submit to their own husbands. Amen? Just, it's a, what happened? Somebody, how many of you believe that a woman is to submit to her own husband? How many of you know the Bible teaches that? And yet someone will take that truth and pull it out of its context and make it mean something that doesn't and draw women, or I'm sorry, and drive women away from the Lord. Drive women away from the truth of the scriptures because they say, I'm not going to live like that. Well, you don't have to, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't put that burden on you. So they can be either misplaced or misapplied. Here's from Hartle again. The Bible can be made to prove anything, but not when studied in the light of the context. This is so frustrating when you hear a Christopher Hitchens in a debate take a passage out of context to argue against Christians. And this is what people do all the time. They take it out of context. But here's the problem. If you're debating with an atheist and you try to explain the context to the atheist, he doesn't believe any of it, so that's the wrong way to debate him. Just quote him the truth. Just keep saying the scriptures to him. Just keep saying the scriptures to him. Don't let him distract you from the context into the context argument because the context is only for people who believe it. If you don't believe it, the context doesn't matter. You can make it say anything you want. But if you do claim to believe it, then you'd better care about the context. Okay? So let's, let's go on. The Bible can be made to prove anything, but not when studied in the light of the context. You can pick out a verse or part of a verse and use it to prove a theory and make it mean something God never intended it to mean. That is not treating Scripture fairly. Vital. All right, key thought number two. Again from Hartle. Every verse must be studied in the light of its context. Never take a verse out of its setting and give it a foreign meaning. Now, how many of you feel like we're, we're kind of beating the same drum here? Why? What are, the, what are the three most important principles of Bible study? Why do people disagree with us about doctrine? Because of the principle of context. We can prove everything we believe from the Bible in its context. We can. Every question and answer, we do it. You say, that's, that's kind of arrogant. Now, well, I didn't invent it. <laughs> I just believe it and teach what the Bible says. So, so we all say this out loud with me. It's going to freak you out. How many of you ready to be freaked out? You young people are ready to be freaked out. It's close to Halloween. Okay? On three, I want you to say we're right. One, two, three. Right. I know there's some people visiting saying, can we say that? Isn't that mean? Well, we're not wrong. All right, let's go on. <laughs> Context. R.A. Torrey, great preacher of the past, he said, too much importance cannot be laid upon a close study of the context. You can't put too much importance on it. 
This is Moyer. This is the one who taught Hartle at Northwestern Bible College. Too many preachers prepare a message and then hunt a text to fit it. That is not a text. It is a pretext. That's why it's important to preach the Bible. Vital. Vital. I'm going to give you an example of that in a minute that's really funny. Lockhart said the context is the key to the meaning. The context is the key to the meaning. So let me talk about that for a minute. One of the problems in Bible colleges is, and in all training, you go online, whatever, it is, so look at our statement, the context is the key to the meaning. You, you can define most Bible words by how they are used in the context. So what will happen is a, a, a student is taught to go and look at the Greek definitions. You, you, you look at the word that is translated into the English. You go to the Greek word. You look that up in your dictionary, your lexicon, and there might be eight different meanings of that word. And what a, a kind of a simple-minded, really an unbelieving approach is, you have the idea that that word can mean any one of those eight definitions in your verse. That is not true. That is not true at all. How are you going to know which word it's supposed to be? The context. Do you know what your best bet is? How about you just leave your Bible alone and believe the word that's there? It's so important that we understand this is the way that people are taught, and that's why there is so much confusion in the world. Because here's what's happened. You'll be arguing with somebody about something, what might be the charismatic movement or whatever, and they'll say, well, that's not what that word means. Oh, really? So you know what it means and nobody else does. Very important. Here's, I know what this word means. It's right here. You can look it up in an English dictionary. You know what the word means. Well, what if there's eight different English words for it, English definitions for it? Then you get your definition from the context. What does it mean in the context? And it's almost, e it's almost always easy to determine that. The other thing that you do is you find out how that word is used elsewhere in the Bible. I don't go to a lexicon to find out what that word means. I find out what God means by that word because he used that word in other places in the Bible. We looked at uh, in Revelation chapter 2, it said, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you look down at, the, at, at your study Bible, you look down, you're not at that passage. Some of you are looking for it. We're not at Revelation 2. But if you went to the, the bottom of your page on Revelation 2, you have a little footnote where it says angel and it says pastor. Now, how many of you know the word pastor was available to God right there? And how many of you know a difference between an angel and your pastor? How many of you know that I am no angel? Right? Angels aren't nearly as handsome as me. There are some ugly jokers that aren't they? It's, do you see what I'm saying? If God had wanted to use the word pastor, he would have used pastor. He used the word angel. And so it probably means what? Well, then why did your study Bible say that? Because the Greek word could also be angel, but the, I'm sorry, the Greek word could also be pastor. But there's another word for pastor that he always uses for pastor. And so it's angel. All right, we could spend some more time there. But let's not. All right, so context is the key to the meaning. Let's get some examples. Look at 2 Chronicles 7.14. And we're going to go through these fast. I want you to see these. 2 Chronicles. So you go to the first five books and keep moving. You'll get there. 
Kings, Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 7. You all know this verse. You've heard it every time somebody's going to pray for national revival. Second Chronicles 7, 14. Everybody there? Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How many of you have heard that verse before? Almost every time you've ever heard it, it's probably out of context. Because that is not talking about the United States. How many of you know the United States are not God's people? But but here's what they'll say. But what that means is if God's people who are in the United States will pray, then God will heal the United States. Really? When is the church ever called God's people? Or Jesus' bride? this This is for Israel. That have anything to do with us. And at the end of the tribulation period, do you know what's going to happen? God's people are going to pray. They're going to seek his face. And they're going to have to humble themselves. And we know they humble themselves. You know how we know they humble themselves? They leave the land. What does Jesus tell them to do? When you see the abomination that's called desolate, that, that's when the, the Antichrist sets up an image in the holiest of all in the temple. When you see that happen, get out of town. And where do they go? They go to Jordan. They leave the promised land. They leave it. They finally humble themselves. Then what the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. Isn't it funny what happens when you compare Scripture with Scripture and you leave the Bible in its context? They're going to seek His face. So this doesn't have anything to do with the United States. So just if you think it does, how are we doing? How many of you feel the United States becoming more and more righteous all the time? I just feel that righteousness rising. For example, Dave Spicer, I got his permission to say this. They got a notice from the attorney general at the sheriff's office that says the attorney general wants sheriff's deputies at every school board meeting and if anyone disrupts a school board meeting, we need to get their name. They have to, they're supposed to get their name and turn it into the FBI. And Dave said, we can't say what the sheriff said at church. Praise God. Not, not that he said that, but that he doesn't want to do it. We're not going to submit. We don't have to submit to that garbage. The idea that, that what, what are they worried about? That parents are going to have an influence on the school board for righteousness. They don't want that to happen. They do not want the parents to have a voice at the school board meetings. How many of you think parents ought to have a voice at the school board meetings? How many of you think America's getting better and better? No. Evil men and seducers so wax worse and worse. When you take the passage out of its context, you're asking God to do something he never promised to do. Why, Why would God bless the United States of America? We're the number one exporter of pornography, of evil, of debauchery around the world. I think the only reason we still exist is because we've been good to Israel. Keep going. Second Chronicles 7, 14, taken out of its context. This is my favorite. Look at Psalm 2. This one's funny. I know some of you are saying, Pastor, I've heard your humor. I'll be the judge of that. All right. Psalm 2, I was at a pastor's meeting, and this preacher was preaching on um, Spanish-speaking missions, how we need to have Spanish-speaking ministries. I think that's a great idea. Where's the Hughes at? How many of you guys in church? Okay, you, you guys are for Spanish-speaking ministry, right? You're for that. So, he, he preached on that, which, and we're for that, but look at the passage. This is where, where um, 
one of the quotes that we had, the guy said, don't take a, don't look for, you know, get your sermon and look for a verse to match it. Don't do that. That's what this guy did. All right. So verse, verse seven, Psalm two and verse seven, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son this day. Have I begotten thee? Ask of me. This is, this is the father speaking to the son. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now, there's a couple of problems. How many of you think that Spanish speakers might, you know, resent being called heathen? How many of you know some English-speaking heathen? So that's an interesting misuse of the verse. But he said, so since God has already given these people to Jesus, we just need to go out into the world and gather them up. That's his mission's message. And he preached a whole message on those two verses. I was sitting next to my friend Paul Gentry at the meeting. And I said, and here's what we're going to do with them when we gather them up. Look at the next verse. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How many of you know that would not be very effective in a gospel track? Come to our church. We're going to beat you with a rod of iron and dash you into pieces. I told you it was going to be funny. How many of you think the guy should, seriously, how many of you think that if you're going to preach a text, you ought to at least read the next verse? Right? That's a passage taken out of context. What's going to happen? Jesus Christ is going to return, and his enemies are going to be dashed in pieces. They're going to be crushed under his feet, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. That's what the Bible says. His long-suffering is stopping that so people can still be saved, but eventually it's going to happen. Context. All right? Here's another one, Matthew chapter 5. Everybody knows this verse. And it's always taken out of context. You say always? Yes, always. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Anyone ever heard this? Ye are the light of the world. Go light your candle. Right? I'd like to teach the... Okay, that's not a church. That's different. Okay, verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city... That a sin on a hill cannot be hid. George H.W. Bush, you know, when he's calling for the new world order. We're a city on a hill. How many of you remember that? No, we're not. This is Jerusalem. How many of you know God has a holy city? And there's a hill on that holy city. And he's going to sit on a throne in that holy city. How many of you know that? This is Jerusalem. You're not the light of the world. Israel is. Now, we have a light. We have the glory of God that's in us. We need to shed that abroad. But we're not the light of the world. Israel's the light of the world. That you're, you're not a city on a hill. We have here no continuing city, the Bible says. But we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. How many of you see everybody takes this out of context? Everybody takes this out of context. The context is very important. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's not done with Israel. They are going to be a city on a hill again. They're going to be the light of the world. As a matter of fact, from that city, that's where all the light will be. There won't even be a sun in the sky anymore. There won't be a moon needed anymore because Jesus Christ will be the light. The verse is true. Just have to take it in its context. Here's another one, Philippians 2.12. Boy, this one's caused a lot of trouble. Another verse you all know. Constantly taken out of context. Man, and I hope preachers watch this message. Share this message, will you please? Share this message with people. People need to hear this because I hear preachers preach these passages wrong all the time. All right? So, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, 
as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh man, you better work out your salvation. You better make sure that, that, that you're saved. Make sure that you work it. Work, work, work to make sure you're saved. Good luck. You get saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Anybody saved today? So that's the new man and the old man. Your new man's saved. So what you got to do is you got to make sure you got to work that to the outside. You got to somehow get the outside to match the inside. Work it out. Work it. How many of you know what the word out means? Y'all, y'all know what out means? In and out. In, like your belly button. Some of them are in, some of them are out. In and out. We, we, we understand what that means. So you've got, you've got the Spirit of God in you. The new man is the inward man. The outward man is dying day by day. We looked at that last week. Work your salvation out. Get, get your salvation to come out. Context. That's what it's, if you look at this whole thing, verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now, when we think of bowels, that's not a pretty thought. But look at the way that it's spelled. Think of bowls. It's, it's the seat. It's the place. It's, it's you. It's the seat of your emotions. It's the thing that holds your emotions. That's, that's what that old word means. All right? So, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing... It's all, all of this stuff is for what? For believers. It doesn't have anything to do with getting you saved this is what God has made you on the inside. Work that to the outside. How many of you, it's work to demonstrate love, joy, peace, long-suffering? How many of you, that's hard for you to do? That's work. Work it out. Work it out. Okay, let's keep going. Look at Romans eight twenty-eight. Some of you might know this verse. It's quoted to you every time something bad happens in your life. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. So somebody gets in trouble. You know, they have a car wreck. Their child dies. They lose their job. They get cancer. Well, it's all going to work out for good. It's all going to be good. Don't worry. It's all going to be good. That's not what the verse says. Look what the verse says. And we know that all things work together for, for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Man, this life is a parenthesis. Eventually it's going to be over. And everything is going to be good. But in between there, there's going to be some suffering. What's this promise? Life is just a very short part of your existence. And then if you're saved, it's eternal blessedness. It's eternal hope. It's eternal worship. It's eternal peace. It's eternal bliss and wonderful. And that's what's coming. That's the hope. If you're not saved, this is as good as it's going to get. Remember Laura and Jacob having a conversation about Stephen Hawking struggling with ALS. He's all crippled and he had to speak through a machine. And I can't imagine the misery and agony he was in every day. And whatever that, that last day was of misery and agony was the best day he would ever have for the rest of his life because he was going straight to hell because he rejected a Christ that would save him. He rejected it. 
So taking these verses out of their context causes so much trouble. This health, wealth gospel. If your faith is strong enough, God will heal you. If your faith is strong enough, God will work that out to good. Because you love him, God's going to make that that pain go away. God's going to make that. He never promised that. So by lifting it out of its context, somebody was telling me, I guess it was uh, at the meeting this week, Jeff Bartell went to a healing service in Albania. He was a missionary in Albania. And this guy came in in a wheelchair, and the healer just walked by him and went to someone where you couldn't see the malady. And that person who had been raised under the Iron Curtain had never heard the gospel, had heard that God could heal. And he went to this meeting where this healer was supposed to be. Can you imagine whatever happened to that person in the wheelchair, what happened to their faith? Because he was told God would do something for him that God never promised he would context. Someone had wrested the scriptures out of their context. It's vital that we know the truth. So here's a principle. You will never understand your Bible if you ignore the context of the passage. Context. It's the most important thing that we'll study. It's the most important thing. So let's, let's just finish up with this. Would you look at, would you look at uh, Romans chapter 10? All right, look at verse 9. That if thou, okay, so we, we've looked at some ye's and some these. Ye, that starts with a Y, that's always plural. Thou, the T, that's singular. So this is talking to you, all right? There's no such thing as national salvation in the New Testament, only individual salvation, all right? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. Now, how many of you know what your mouth is? Okay, what does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God. That's what it means, to confess. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, who? Is it just Jesus? Everybody, are you all with me? Is it just Jesus? What does it say? Is the Lord, is that a nickname? It's what he is. Does, does Lord have a meaning? Yeah, you can't just say, oh, hey, Jesus, man, you're a cool dude. I want you to be my buddy. That's not salvation. It's acknowledging him. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven. He's God. And the only way he can be saved is if he, you can be saved is if he's the Lord of your life. Okay? That thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, but just saying words doesn't do anything. And shall believe in thine heart, see the T, thine, that's you, heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, how many of you can understand all of that? It's just in its context. That's what it means. It goes on to explain it. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. How many of you know things that you don't necessarily believe? Right? For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. So you don't have to be Jewish to go to heaven. For the same Lord over all is rich unto, what's that next word? That call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. What's it say? 
How many of you think that's an important word? You see, when you understand context, I don't have to work for my salvation. I believe and confess. I believe and confess. If you've never believed that Jesus Christ is God and that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead and confessed, I need you to be my Lord. I can't save myself. I deserve hell. Then none of this matters. None of this matters. Let today be the day of your salvation. But for those of us who believe, which is who? How many of you are you saved? You know Jesus Christ is your Savior? You sure? You sure? Better work it out. If you're sure, then maybe it's good for us to study our Bible to be set for the defense of the gospel. Amen? Context. It's vital. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word and preach it. I'm so thankful for those who have taught me, Jeff Adams and Mark Trotter and Keith Kaiser and my father and all of these who have gone before me. And then Edwin Hartle and, and R.L. Moyer that came before them. and R.A. Torrey before them. and All these people that have helped us to understand your word. Lord, I'm very thankful for them. But if you hadn't given us the word, there'd be nothing for them to teach us. So, Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you that we can hold the Bible in our hands. Lord, thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. I hope you're born again. If you've never trusted Christ alone for your salvation, now, I'm done, but let me just make one statement. Don't unplug from this. Just because you're religious, that doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. Just because you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't mean that you get to go to heaven. There's a transaction that takes place, and it takes place at a moment in time. It can be a process where you come to believe. God will use many circumstances and many teachers to bring you to a place of belief. But when you believe, now an exchange has to be made where you give Jesus your sin, and he gives you his righteousness. I'm not talking about going to confession. I can't save you. If you confess your sin to me, I can't save you. I'm not talking about going to confession. I'm not talking about taking the Lord's Supper where you, you eat, eat a, a, a piece of bread or drink the cup. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not salvation. That's a picture of what Jesus did when he died. Salvation is where you say, Jesus, I believe. You're confessing with your mouth. I believe that you're Lord. I believe in my heart. And you ask him to save you. You receive the gospel. You don't receive a wafer. You don't receive, receive a piece of bread. You don't receive a drink. You receive Jesus. You ask him to save you. You believe. And, and an exchange happens. Jesus takes your sin and he clothes you in his righteousness. Isn't that exciting? If you've never done that, do it today. Jesus wants to save you today. The, today is the day of your salvation. What a wonderful promise. Now, Help me out. How many of you know how to take the Bible and show someone how they can go to heaven? Hold your hands up. Hold them up for me. Look around. Look around. Find one of these people and ask them, hey, will you show me? Come to me. I'll, I'll show you how. Let today be the day of your salvation.